Today I'm preaching out of Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to read, I think I'm going to read the entire chapter. Uh, much of it will, will probably be unclear, especially if you're unfamiliar with the, the, the text of Hebrews, but that's what a sermon is for. So I'm going to read the entirety of it just to kind of lay a groundwork. So this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And he's also king of Salem, that, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, in the one case tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. For it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if, if you would pray with me, that would be excellent. 
Lord, as we approach this uh, very dense text, I pray that you would give clarity to my preaching. And that ultimately, Lord, what, what we would see out of this passage is that our way of getting to you, our way of becoming, of ending the alienation between you and us is only as good as the one who goes between us. And Lord, you have given us an all-sufficient priest, an all-sufficient go-between in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that the, the result of, of studying this passage together this morning would be that we would draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I encourage you to have this passage open. You can turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, depending on, uh, on what your way is. Um, we're continuing in our series on the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews is a letter to a church in the first century. I say a letter, uh, but modern scholarship tends to, to lean toward thinking this was actually a sermon or, or notes from a number of sermons. In either case, it's written to a, an unidentified church from an unidentified author in the first century. So today's passage, and, today, and therefore today's sermon, is going to be a little bit more academic than, than usual. So uh, many of us can sort of be turned off by theology or doctrine. For instance, if you had to choose a devotional book or a doctrinal book, ma many would, would choose the devotional book every time. And it's not necessarily because, you know, they, they find something that the devotional book has. It's, I think that, that oftentimes they're confident that there's something the doctrinal book doesn't have. You know, we, 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 we tend to think we'll be nourished by the devotional, but we'll be drained by doctrine. So I kind of want to begin by challenging that this morning. Like we talked about last week, if, if we want to be fruitful Christians, Christians who are productive for the Lord and, and, and are fruitful for the long haul, we need good theology. Theology is soil. No one eats soil. It's disgusting. But nor can you draw good fruit out of bad soil. Theology is the soil. Theological knowledge alone is not fruitfulness, but if you want to grow good fruit, you need rich soil. We need rich theology, rich doctrine to, to, to sort of be the bedrock of, of our Christian walk. And by, I will tell you this too, oftentimes theology might appear dry up front, but then later on it becomes way richer than a lot of the sort of here today, gone tomorrow Christian books that we hear about, right? So C.S. Lewis, he wrote a preface to On the Incarnation by, by Athanasius. He, he says this, for my own part, I, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that, quote unquote, nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. So I, I say all this just to point out that passages like this that are, that are tough, that are dense, are, are worth digging into. It's worth getting granular. When life gets complicated, what do we tell somebody? Engage, right? We, we tell them to get after it. And so the, the same rule should apply for Scripture. So here's what's kind of going on in this passage. What I want to do right now is I'm going to put um, Psalm 110.4 on the screen. And that's going to be there for the whole time, for the whole sermon. There, there are sort of subpoints and stuff like that, but uh, I think it'll actually be more useful if we just have this one verse on the screen the whole time. Here's why. The, the author of Hebrews, this whole chapter is building off of this one verse. He's interpreting this one verse and applying it to Jesus. And so he's going to jump around different places to do that because he's a good preacher. Uh, but this is basically what he's interpreting the whole time. 
So, like any good biblical scholar, what he's going to do in order to get at the meaning of this one verse and to show why it matters, what he's going to do is he's he's not just going to decide on whatever meaning sort of strikes him out of this verse, right? So, when you open up a manual for an IKEA furniture item, you don't just turn to the middle and pick a step, right? Insert Alan screw into shelf B, you know, and then you just go from there, although that was really edifying, and then you flip to the back and you choose another step, like insert dull rod F into, you know, you would end up at the end with something that looks nothing like the picture on the manual, right? Now, if you follow the manual, you still might end up with something that looks nothing like the picture on the manual. It's Ikea. But in any case, we don't approach an Ikea manual that way. The manual interprets the manual, right? We go to the, the manual to tell us um, what it is that we're, like how it is that we're supposed to interpret each step along the way. The only way to make it all go together is to take it all on its own terms. There, there's, no, there's no such thing as, as reading an Ikea manual just to figure out what it means to me, right? <laughs> That's not really how we, we, we do that. But we do sometimes do that with scripture, don't we? We do sometimes go to scripture and it's like, well, this is what this means to me. Um, but script, if, if we can't approach an Ikea manual um, without taking the whole thing together, then, then man, I, I don't know that we should be doing that with the word of the Lord. So what the, the author of Hebrews is going to do in order to get at the, the in order to, to build this argument out of Psalm 110, he's going to have to, to jump to Genesis 14 and figure out just who this Melchizedek, Melchizedek guy was. And he's going to talk about the Levitical priesthood and he's going to work all this stuff out. It's going to be this big, rich uh, biblical theology. And, uh, and I think it'll, it'll be very meaningful for us too if we work through it. So here's how I want to do this this morning. I'm just going to leave that on the screen, but here's kind of the big idea. Our system for getting to God is only as good as our priest. Our system for getting to God is only as good as our priest. And to sort of guide us through that, I have two questions I'm going to ask of the text. The first one is, what kind of priest is Jesus? And that'll basically be the whole sermon. The second question will come at the tail end, and that will be what kind of system does he bring? But again, the big idea is our system for getting to God is only as good as our priest. So the first question to ask, what kind of priest is Jesus? So to to know what kind of priest Jesus is, we first have to know what a priest is. There's sort of two ways of thinking about God, I think, in our our current culture. We sort of have those who who think that uh, we approach God... Um, the way that a child approaches their parent in the middle of the night when they ask for water, like they're banging on the wall and just like, I need water. It's very intimate. Like there's a kind of approach that would only be possible if this was a child, right? And then there are others who, who think that we approach God sort of the way that we would approach a CEO at a major corporation. So if I want to, you know, drive up 94 to, to go to the Uline offices and talk to the CEO there, I'm not going to see his face, right? There, there are rungs of a ladder that I would have to climb to get to him, and most likely I would still never see his face. There'll be a secretary of some kind who will FaceTime with me and relay to him what he needs to know, you know? So that's kind of how we, we, we think about approaching God. There's this go-between. What the Bible basically says is that we should have the first relationship, but because of sin, we have the second relationship. We should have the child-parent relationship, that kind of intimacy with God. But because of sin, 
We need a go-between. And so throughout the scriptures, what, what you see is this constant, um, uh, constant way in which God provides go-betweens so that people can be made right with him. That's what a priest is. A priest is a go-between, between people and God. So in ancient Israel, the priests came out of one particular clan. That was the clan of Levi. In fact, uh, there's a, an entire book of the Bible, um, Leviticus. It comes from the, the name of their tribe because that, that book talks a whole lot about sort of the, the worship of Israel. So the, the priesthood loomed very large. It's, it's probably pretty hard for us to, to understand from, from our modern-day lens just how, uh, just how weighty the priesthood was to the daily life of Israel. I mean, they, they were the center of life for the nation, and there was a lot involved in what they did. They curated worship. They uh, they oversaw sort of what was called ceremonial cleanness, uh, but the main function that they had was to be this go-between, and, and what that meant is that they would sacrifice animals. They would atone for sin. That's what they were there for. They were there to atone for the sins of the people so that they could be made right with God. So that's what a priest was there to do. They made it possible for people to approach God. And so what you've got to understand is that the whole system of worship the whole system of worship was on the shoulders of these Levite, of the Levitical priests. So it was held up by them, but also the system was limited by them. So the system was held up by these priests, but it was also limited by these priests. So think about our system of government. So our whole system of government is built on the idea that humans cannot be trusted. That's, that's the, the assumption underneath the entire American system of government, is that humans cannot be trusted. So you should not trust one guy or one faction with all the power. We have to have checks and balances all over the place so that there's this constant check against untrustworthy people. The whole system is built on the idea that people are untrustworthy. In fact, the protections that we have around free speech the same way. Why is it that we should protect dissenters? No, basically, no matter how crazy they are, why is it that we should protect dissenters? Because the majority can't be trusted. We have to protect dissenters because the majority is untrustworthy. They're people. And so, however good our system is, our system is shaped, it's given its entire shape by the fact that people are untrustworthy. So in a way, our system is limited. In fact, uh, in one of the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton says that if men were angels, there would be no government necessary. If men were angels, there'd be no government necessary. Why? Well, because you could have no laws, no system, whatever, but they're completely trustworthy. They'll be fine. Government exists because people are untrustworthy. So our, our system is limited by the untrustworthiness of people. In the same way, the system that the Levites uh, you know, were, were holding up, they were holding up a system that also had to sort of cater to their, their weaknesses. The system was limited by the Levites. So here's a few things that the author of Hebrews points out. Right now, I'm mainly taking this from verse 11 all the way to 25, in case you're, uh, you, you want to sort of check out um, sort of where I'm at. So the first thing he mentions is that the Levites are no different than other people. They're supposed to represent the people of God, but they're, they're no more holy than the rest of the people of God. And so there's a problem there. What actually qualifies them to, to be the go-between? Well, just that they're the chosen one. 
they're the ones chosen to do it. Otherwise, there, there really is no substantial difference between them and everybody else. That's the first problem. That's a limitation. Secondly, they all die. They're all people. It, the, the, the Levitical priesthood is basically a family business. You're trusting these families to pass on the values that would make a good priest. If they didn't, then they didn't. And there's stories throughout the scriptures of the times when they didn't. And so that, that makes the system very fragile. So they all die. The system is fragile. Third, the office of the priest was never guaranteed by God. So um, what do I mean by that? In other words, at no point in the Bible does God say, this is my ultimate plan for humanity. He never says that about the priesthood. At no point does God sort of swear that this is it. This is, this is what, I'm, what I'm all about. This is how I'm going to interact with people forever. There's never anything like that. So the way the, the author of Hebrews puts it is he says that God never seals the priesthood with an oath. In other words, it doesn't have a seal of approval. And then finally, and this is probably the most important, the system doesn't actually work. So people are alienated from God. The deepest problem with humanity, the deepest problem with us, is that we are alienated from God. And being alienated from God makes us alienated from ourselves, from each other, and from the rest of creation. That wound is what needs to be healed to heal us. And that, that, the healing of that wound, that's the grand project of God that the Bible is describing. So the priests were put in place to be the go-between, to bring us to God. And they made, us, they made people right with God. You know, they would atone for sin through these sacrifices. But did they actually heal the alienation? The answer is no. The answer is no. The priests could not bring us into the, the, the most intimate parts of the temple, for instance. That's kind of a, you know, uh, what I'm describing is the, the priests, they would go into these, these inner sanctums, the holy of holies within the temple. They wouldn't bring the people with them because the alienation between the people and God wasn't actually being healed. The, the, the Jews of Jesus' day and, and the, the day of the author of the letter to the Hebrews, the Israelites in the wilderness, they might have believed that the old priestly system was the healing they needed. They might have thought that way. They might have thought it was stitches and a bandage and a checkup every week until it's better, but it wasn't. It was a tourniquet. It stopped the bleeding. It didn't heal the wound. And so if we're going to heal the wound, we need something different. So remember the big idea. The system that brings us to God is only as good as our priest. So if the priest that's representing us can really only stop the bleeding but never heal the wound, then we need a new priest. So the author of the, the letter to the Hebrews, he's looking back on, on all of this in the scriptures, and what he sees is what's called planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence. So lots of people will say, you know, they just don't make them like they used to. You know, things just aren't built to last. There is some truth in that. There, there's this thing called planned obsolescence that, that many companies actually uh, do where they will build products to break. You know, so you'll buy an appliance or a car or like a pair of jeans. The, the manufacturer knows the, the time frame uh, in which that thing's going to break, and sometimes they're planning for it so that you, what? You have to go back and buy another. Right, so it's planned obsolescence. The, the, the author of Hebrews, he looks back on this whole system of this priesthood and he says it was planned to become obsolete. This was not built to last. This was not built to last. 
So are you with me so far? Yes? Okay. So if, if that whole system was not God's ultimate strategy, then what is? So if priests after the order of Levi was not the strategy, what was? That's where the author latches onto this verse. So again, the verse goes, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you kind of have to imagine how the author might have approached that verse. You know, I, I imagine that he, he would have sort of noodled around for a little while and wondered, what does it mean for a priest to be after the order, so like of the kind of Melchizedek? Well, if he wants to find that out, what, what, what should he do? He should go back and, and read about Melchizedek and figure out, all right, so what, what kind of a priest was he? So that's exactly what he does. A little bit of context, though. All the kings in the old days came from one tribe, and all the priests came from another. This is a poem written to Messiah, a king. So Messiah was sort of the ultimate king, uh, a descendant of David, so he would have come from the tribe of Judah. This poem was written to a king, and yet it calls him a priest. And that's kind of what the author of, of Hebrews wants to show us is so significant, is that th there's a different kind of priest who can, who can bring about an even better system. So he would look back to, to wherever the, the Bible talked about Melchizedek, and he would um, learn what he could from that. So if you have a Bible or if you, you've got your phone open, go back to Genesis 14. I'm going to read the passage. So Genesis 14 is where he mentions, where, where the scriptures mention Melchizedek. This is where the author of Hebrews is working off of. So what he's going to do, and what he's doing in those, those first two paragraphs of, of, the, of chapter 7 in Hebrews, is he's actually just doing a commentary. He's writing a commentary about this passage. So here's what happened. This passage is about Abram. So this is the father of the nation of Israel, you know, uh, later called Abraham. At this point, it's called Abram. He has not had his son yet. Uh, Abram's cousin Lot got himself in a bunch of trouble. And so these like sort of warring uh, tribal kings all got together and stole Lot away with a bunch of other people. And so Abram got together with a bunch of other warring tribal kings. And, they, you know, these two factions sort of fought each other and, and Abram saved Lot. So that's the context. And the, the king of Sodom, the king of, of Lot's town, wants to bless Abraham, or re reward him. But before he can, this is what happens. So after his return... From the defeat of Cato Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out, Sodom went out to meet with Abraham at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then after that, Abram uh, refuses to be blessed by the king of Sodom. Instead, he, he wants to be blessed by this priest of God Most High. So it's a really weird passage. Uh, it's, it was a stumper for years and years, and in many ways continues to be. Melchizedek just kind of comes out of nowhere. There's no context given. I and mean, we're told sort of where he comes from. He's the king of Jerusalem. That's what Salem is. So he's the king of Jerusalem. Uh, but he's also a priest of God Most High. How did he become a priest of God Most High? I thought Abram and God had their own little thing going, but instead Melchizedek apparently is, is also in on it. There's no details given about the man. He just shows up, 
does this little thing, bread and wine show up, which is also super interesting, and then he's gone. And he is never mentioned again until Psalm 110. It's the weirdest little interaction. So who is this guy? That's, that's what the author of Hebrews wants to show us in the first two paragraphs of this chapter. Here's a couple things he points out. First, Melchizedek is a priest to God, but he's also a king. So that's kind of breaking rules. Like I said, the kings came from one tribe, the priests from another. Melchizedek's both. Secondly, Melchizedek blesses the patriarch. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, which says something about how important he is. So in a corporation, very seldom does a subordinate walk into the office of his supervisor and say, good news, I'm giving you a promotion. It just doesn't happen because the superior always blesses the inferior, right? Does that make sense? So for Abraham to be blessed by this stranger in the book of Genesis means that this stranger is really important. He has a weight to him, so much so that the father of God's people is blessed by him. There's a second thing that's kind of related. So there was this idea in the, in the ancient world, uh, we are way more interconnected than we realize. People are way more interconnected than we realize. And, and typically when you view the world through like a highly Western lens, especially a, a lens that was shaped by classical liberalism, that's neither here nor there, um, but if, when you look at the world through a highly Western lens, it's hard to see just how interconnected we actually are. In the ancient world, uh, there was this idea of, of, of your, of the generations that would come from you sort of being hidden within you. That like waiting latent inside of you are all the people who will come from you. So that when you look at a person, you're not just looking at a person, you're looking at a green acorn, like a ripe acorn. It's small, it's, it's just an acorn, and yet, it's also a tree. It's the tree to come from it. So you could look at a person and, and see all the generations that will come from them. So the author of Hebrews does this thing where he says, here with Abraham, you're not just seeing Abraham tithe to Melchizedek. You're not just seeing Abraham give honor to Melchizedek. You're seeing everybody who will come from him give honor to Melchizedek. So you're seeing the priesthood bless this priest. It's, does that make sense? So, so there's two ways in which Melchizedek is a better, more superior person. He's superior to the patriarch because Abraham bless, uh, lets him bless him. But also, Abraham tithes to this guy. So he's sort of doubly the superior of Abraham and the superior of the whole system that's about to I issue from Abraham. I know this is granular. Is this, is this all right? It's okay if, if you know, uh, you can shake your head too, and I'll just explain more if, if I get a sense that's uh, troublesome. But um, so the last thing about Melchizedek, and this may be the most important, Mel Melchizedek is apparently highly important, uh, but most of the time in the book of Genesis, when a really, really important person shows up, you know who his daddy is, you might even know who his mommy is, you know his whole pedigree. I mean, there's genealogies all over the book of Genesis. Right? So when an important figure shows up, you're seeing them in, coming out of this long stream of, of people. And it kind of proves their, their importance. Melchizedek, this guy that apparently is more important than Abraham, more important than the very center of God's plan in the world, the nation of Israel, he has no genealogy mentioned. 
No father is mentioned, no mother is mentioned, no genealogy. He comes out of nowhere. And so the author of Hebrews reads that, and he thinks, well, this is the strangest thing. He has no beginning. Another common feature about the book of of Genesis is this constant refrain of so-and-so lived this many years and then he died. So-and-so lived this many years and then he died. And if you, again, if you run into an important person in the book of Genesis, typically, you're not only going to know his mommy and daddy, you're also going to know how many years he lived when he died. Again, no mention of it. Melchizedek comes out of nowhere, and just as mysteriously as he came, he leaves. No genealogy, no beginning, no end. We don't know when he died. And so the author of Hebrews, he looks at this and he says, well, this is really weird. He has no beginning and no end. He lives on. As far as the text tells us, he's still priesting. Now, let me just get, so I'll, I'll just say this brief thing. There are some who have read this passage of Hebrews, and they have drawn some very strange conclusions from this. I probably don't even need to mention this, but Melchizedek is not still alive. He is not actually still priesting. This is a literary thing that the, that the author of Hebrews is doing. He's looking at the, just the literature of this moment, and he's, he's saying, oh, there, you know, Jesus is kind of like this. He's not saying that there's literally a priesthood of Melchizedek and it's still ongoing. But there's, there are some who have drawn that conclusion, so I just feel like I had to say something about it. Probably didn't need to, but I did. So uh, all these interesting things about Melchizedek, he is both a king and a priest, so that's the first thing. He is superior to Abraham, he is superior to the priesthood, and he has no beginning and no end. So What? So what this means is that God has always had a different strategy. Remember, this is from the book of Genesis. That's when he shows up. This is before God has launched his project with Israel. This means that that as Israel was doing its thing on the stage of, of God's plan, waiting backstage in the darkness was the ultimate strategy. It was not plan B. All along, God has had this secret. And the Bible, like, tees it up for you in its first book. In the first book of the scriptures, we are told that God has an ultimate and more permanent strategy. In the, the, in the 14th chapter of the Bible, like, you're not even 20 pages in. And already, <clears throat> the Bible is saying... That your system of getting to God is only as good as as your priest, and there's a really good priest coming. And the author of Hebrews says the only person who can fit this is Jesus. That Jesus is the long-awaited king, but he is also the eternal son of God, pre-existent, very God of very God, And he is the one who has acted as a priest, not by sacrificing an animal, but by sacrificing himself. That there is another kind of priest, and it is the Christ. This is the kind of priest that Jesus is. He is the one who is both priest and king. He is the one who was before Abraham, as Jesus said, before Abraham, I am. He is the one who does a priesthood that is greater than that of 
of anything that came before because he does not die because he, he gives not only uh, the blood of animals but his own blood and then most of all, his life is indestructible. That's the kind of priest that Jesus is. And so the last question this morning is what kind of system does Jesus bring? Our system to get to God is only as good as our priest. So if you change the priest, you can change the system. So this is what he's getting at there, there in, in verse 11 and in that, that whole paragraph. If you change the priest, you can change the system. So there's a friend of mine who uh, who's very knowledgeable in philosophy and the classics, has a great books degree. And so he and I read the classics together and we're working our way through all the, the major works of Aristotle. And, uh, you know, by working our way through, it means that we read the book together and then I ask him a lot of questions. <laughs> um, but Aristotle, he's really worth reading, uh, pretty rewarding. But one of the biggest, a lot of the fun that we have is that, that Aristotle, every now and then, he doesn't do it often, but he has the, he's like, he's got great one-liners. Uh, and so as we go through the books, you know, Matt and I kind of collect these one-liners of Aristotle. So his favorite is, is the line where Aristotle says, a man without a city is either a beast or a god. <laughs> so one of the, the best remarks, one of my favorites always came out of the politics, where Aristotle is talking about different kinds of government. So he's talking about like, well, you know, if you built an aristocracy, you could do it this way. If you built a democracy, here's what you got to watch out for. So he's talking about all these different systems of government. And then suddenly he starts talking about the possibility of this exceptionally virtuous man. So he's like, well, now there's this one possibility that could arise where you get this man who he's wise, he's competent, he's skilled, he's accomplished, he's handsome, he's charismatic, strong, virtuous, he's all these things where you, know, you have all these, these folks you would typically consider for government, and he's a head and shoulders above all of them. He makes them look like children. And so he says, if you see this kind of man arise, the, the one-liner is you must either make him a king or exile him. And it's this idea that, that if somebody that good actually arose and you just put him into the system of checks and balances, you are doing a disservice to your country that the whole system of government should be reshaped around giving all authority to this man. Essentially what Aristotle was saying is that there's one kind of person who deserves to be authoritarian, the person who can be trusted with it. So he says, if, you th if this man arises, you tank the system of government and you make him king and you do whatever he tells you, right? And again, it's, it's just this hypothetical situation that he's coming up with, but but it's this fascinating idea that there could be this person who would come on the scene who would be so obviously of a different kind that the system would have to adapt to him, not him to the system. Jesus is that man. Jesus is that man. He is the priest standing in for us before God, and he is the king, the one who brings God's rule following after him like the train of a royal garment. Jesus knows our weakness as a priest should, and yet he is without sin. So his sacrifice is not repeatable. The, the author of Hebrews, here I'm mainly working off of the last paragraph, verse 26 to the end of the chapter. The, the author of Hebrews, he talks about how these priests, they had to sacrifice again and again, not only for the sins of the people, but for their own sin. Jesus doesn't have to do that because he doesn't have sin. So his sacrifice is once and for all. We can't re-sacrifice Christ. 
He gave his petition for us on the cross, and the sound of it is like that bell in the magician's nephew that once struck just gets louder over time. Jesus has no beginning or end. He is the Alpha and Omega, God embodied. He has no need to pass the baton to another priest. He stands forever in our place. Jesus' priesthood is the one that God sealed with an oath. God said that when you see this kind of a priest arrive, know that that's my ultimate strategy. There is no other thing following after him. This is what God has sworn, that the priest who arrives after the kind of Melchizedek will be the one who carries the hopes and fears of all the years. There is no higher thing that God can do for us. There is nothing a priest could do that God has not already done in Christ. There is no going back to other ways of knowing God. There is no experimenting with the spiritual deli available in our culture. There is only Jesus. He is no tourniquet. He is the healer. Could the worship team come up? So I want to look back at what started us all down this road. When was it that the author of Hebrews started talking about Christ as a high priest? Um, could the communion service also come up? So when was it that the author of, the, of Hebrews started talking about Christ as the high priest? It was back in chapter 4. John Stevenson preached on it a couple weeks ago. And then he, he, he went off the subject, right, to warn. That's what we talked about last week. And then he returns to it here. Remember the context. The author of Hebrews wanted to tell us that we have such a good high priest that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. That no longer do we approach God the way that we would approach a CEO going through the go-between. We approach God the way that, our, that the first pastor of this church described it, as a kid banging on the wall, calling for water from mommy. It is that kind of intimacy. Because the system for getting to God is as good as our priest. And our priest brings us directly into the most intimate heart of God. The alienation between us and God is brought to an end in Christ. And so you can actually go to God in prayer. You can stand before him in worship all throughout your life with confidence. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we can consider ourselves approved by God because Christ has done for us everything that we can't do for ourselves. Christ's petition for us will never come to an end. His priesthood goes on for as long as he is alive and he will always be alive. And so the confidence and hope that we have in Christ is that much stronger because his goodness toward us is that much greater. And so what I'd like to do right now is invite us to approach the table. When we approach the table, we are remembering the priesthood of Christ. How was it that Christ actually brought us to the heart of God. He was slain for us. His body was broken. His blood was shed for the remission of sins. He acted as both the priest and the lamb. Unblemished, innocent, 
and approved by God with an oath. So that's what we're remembering when we approach the table, is the way in which our priest stood in for us. So what I'd like us to do is come and get the elements, return to your seats, and then I'll, I'll lead us in taking them all together. <laughs>